All you have to do uh, is mention the word anti-Semitism in any Jewish group and people start to get uncomfortable. I never all the way understood that until some recent studies came out pointing out that, in fact, there is substantial evidence that trauma is genetically passed forward. So we literally have previous trauma in our DNA, and you really can hardly talk about anti-Semitism without people getting upset. That on the one hand, and as a child of survivors, I am particularly prone to having some of that upset reaction. It needs to be balanced, however, before we get into the subject proper with some other facts. Um, as many of you know, American Jews are per capita the second wealthiest group in the United States, only outdone by Episcopalians. I didn't make that up. <laughs> That's the truth. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't poverty in the Jewish community. Of course, there's real poverty in the Jewish community. But on average, um, the American Jewish community in economic terms is doing astonishingly well. But if any of you didn't like the fact that we came in only in second place economically, <laughs> you can take comfort in the fact that we are the most educated ethnic or religious group in the United States and indeed in the world. And not only that, but in a recent survey regarding ethnic and religious groups, uh, it showed that um, Jews are the most respected and admired group in the United States. Not by Jews, but by real people. So, when we talk about anti-Semitism, we're talking from a point of view of considerable privilege, and that in itself is a kind of assurance of safety, though not entirely. One more uh, story about it, and this one uh, is, is charming, but also a little painful. Um, a number of years ago, I was at an alumni uh, gathering at Harvard, and uh, the dean, who was, who's a Brit, you know, Oxford trained, literally six feet nine inches tall, and he radiates British gentlemen, is doing a Q&A with the group, and uh, a member of the audience uh, obviously American Wasp, says with concern, I hear that a third of the student body is now Jewish here. And the Brit pulls himself up to his full height and he said, yes, and that's shockingly low when you consider 50% of the faculty is. So that on the one hand, and for years in teaching the uh, survey course on American Jewish civilization, 
um, in the contemporary year at the college, I pointed out that we had seen a gradual, almost annual reduction of anti-Semitism in the United States uh, starting in the early 1950s and going on till just a few years ago. Um, the last few years I've started having to teach that anti-Semitism was on the rise in Europe. And this year I had to say, and anti-Semitism in the United States has taken a considerable surge upward. But anti-Semitism is not um, a single phenomenon. Indeed, to understand anti-Semitism in the United States today, you need to understand there are really three distinctive kinds. Um, one is the anti-Semitism of the left, which is not to be confused with a critique of Israel. However, sometimes in that critique of Israel, there is anti-Semitism to be found. And in the rhetoric on college campuses about intersectionality, which says that the oppression of all groups is linked, um, oppression of Palestinians, as it's understood by such folks, holds Israel culpable, and for some of the people involved in intersectionality, the move is made from um, anger about Israeli treatment of Palestinians to, to dislike of Jews. And, um, and therefore, in some places and sometimes, we've seen a real increase in anti-Semitism in some college campuses. And I say in some college campuses because on some college campuses, anti-Israel feeling is anti-Israel feeling and it is not anti-Semitism. So we need to make that distinction, but there is a part of the, the co community's left, the American community's left, um, that has displayed real anti-Semitism in recent years. That, however, is not a particularly potent political force, but does have a major impact on young people who are in the places where they're exposed to that kind of thing. At any rate, that's, that's anti-Semitism of one type. Second type uh, is black anti-Semitism. It's largely ascribed to being positional anti-Semitism. Why? Because in a lot of cities before blacks occupied the places they live now, Jews occupied those places. And therefore, blacks moved in and had Jewish landlords and Jewish teachers and Jewish store owners. And the people you resent are not the power elite usually, they're the people one notch above you on the ladder. And so there has been black anti-Semitism in the United States. And some people have said, well, how can blacks be so down on us when, after all, there were Jews who played such a key role in civil rights in the United States in the 40s and 50s? Well, the first thing to remember is that was several generations ago. Second thing to remember is as long as it was purely about civil rights, Jews were terrific. 
But when we started talking about quotas to improve the black position on college campuses and graduate schools and elsewhere, uh, the American Jewish community, uh, starting with Baki, um, really started pushing the other way. And the, the coalition of Jews and African Americans on civil rights um, has really, in, in a lot of ways, been broken down now for 40 years. So we have a lot of feelings about black anti-Semitism, but the most important thing to know about black anti-Semitism is while it exists, it's not a major political factor in the United States at all. Um, and the highest black elites don't share in it. So the, it's the third kind of anti-Semitism that's been the one that's been on the most rapid rise and uh, needs our serious attention. And it's in some quarters now called the anti-Semitism of the right. Um, but I think that's a misnomer because it's certainly very easy to be extremely conservative in your politics without being an anti-Semite. So to call it the anti-Semitism of the right um, paints with too wide a brush and we, it colors our opinions of people who don't deserve that coloring. But there is a right in the United States, a subgroup, that is associated with white ethnic power. Read Christian white ethnic power. And one of the ways to note that group is they're in at least as strongly anti-Muslim as they are anti-Jewish. They're associated with white triumphalism. And they're associated with a reassertion of American nationalism, meaning they're opposed to internationalism, and a reassertion of patriarchy. So... That's a complicated, challenging collection of beliefs. And of course, we Reconstructionists, with our commitment to full women's equality, full equality for GLBTQ people, full ethnic equality, full racial equality, uh, we are particularly not popular. <laughs> but you know, sometimes they say you can, um, you can see the quality of people by the quality of their enemies. I'm willing to settle. That group on the right um, is dangerous because it represents a coalescence of forces that are trying to resist change that is inevitable. Um, they're resisting economic change and automation and other things that we are going to find it impossible to resist. They're trying to hold on to a world including a world of male domination over women, that um, we are on a steady march to end. And they hold a lot of power in the United States, particularly at this time. President Trump could clearly not have been elected without that group's support. What characterizes that group is that it also has elements in it that are prone to violence, 
Charlottesville would not have been the same kind of demonstration had not this group of folks come into the streets with submachine guns, with clubs, with tire irons, with pistols. They completely changed the character of what could have been a peaceful demonstration with which we would have disagreed, but by which we would not have felt threatened. And they have gotten some degree of cover from some politicians, and that has created a kind of unholy alliance that we haven't seen since the days of George Wallace. How powerful is that group? I think that's a question we all have to be thinking about. And part of the answer has to lie in a different question, which is, is the current political situation, is the, certain, is the current breakdown in the possibility of civil political dialogue um, a temporary flash in the plan because of current circumstances? Or is what we're seeing now the beginning of a much larger, more ugly trend? And that's also connected to the, to the way in which these folks have benefited enormously from the way they use the Internet and websites to find each other and to organize in a way that's really unprecedented. Will anything get done to try to prevent the kind of extremist false news that we're dealing with all the time in the United States now? Um, will anything be done to tamp that or block it? And, of course, for those of us who are deeply committed, as most Americans are, to freedom of speech, um, it's a very tricky issue. Um, when people ask me about it, I point out that Canada has a deep and abiding commitment to freedom of speech and has managed to abolish hate speech. And I think that for us, um, that ought to be a model that we think hard about. Um, there, there ought to be a way to say, in the best Jewish way, freedom of speech cannot be allowed to demean the other. But we're not there yet. Um, so what does this mean to the Jewish community? Well, one of the interesting questions is, as, as I said to some of you earlier, there has been a steady diminution in Jewish ethnicity in the American Jewish community. Those people involved in Judaism among the younger generation are involved much more in religious and communal terms than in ethnic terms. Um, those of you who are anthropology-oriented probably know that um, ethnicity, any kind of ethnicity, is the product of, for a group of adverse political circumstances. For example, you can't understand the, the rise of Palestinian ethnic identity without understanding that the Palestinians feel as abandoned by the Arab world as they do antagonized by the state of Israel. And therefore, you get a rise of ethnicity. Well, so will the new anti-Semitism uh, become more virulent and will that cause a rise in Jewish ethnicity? We don't know the answer to that. 
that it's something that's possible. So what do we do? Well, one thing is we've been pouring money, we, the American Jewish community, have been pouring money into security uh, in unprecedented, unprecedented amounts. Um, equipment, cameras, security guards, you name it. A significant portion of that, by the way, is funded by the federal government. And that would not be the case if anti-Semitism were really as widespread as some people would have you believe because the government would not be on our side. So far, it truly has been. And that is not to be dismissed as a, as a factor in understanding our present situation. Um, we need to be vigilant. But as I said at the beginning, this is an extraordinarily strong Jewish community, and there really is no reason to panic. What are the most important things we can do? we can become much more politically active. It is already true, by the way, that Jews are more politically active than any other religious group in the United States, but it's still only a minority of us doing the work. So becoming more politically active doesn't necessarily mean being involved with a political party. There are lots of ways to fight for civil rights and social justice in this country, and it is still true what American Jewish leadership believed 100 years ago, which is the best way for Jews to defend their rights is to defend the rights of every minority and every ethnic group. But even saying that, we need to be reminded that the Jewish ethnic situation is unique because that right-wing nationalism has a core belief that is akin to the one found in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which says somehow or other Jews are controlling the banking system and Jews are controlling the media and Jews are controlling international political affairs. Um, as one wag had it, we should only be as powerful as our enemies think we are. Um, we're not going to end that set of false beliefs no matter what we do. But what we can do is strengthen the dialogue in the public square. We can bring our wonderful progressive values to bear on our situations. And we can call out demagoguery, whether it's of the right, the left, or the center. We can find it all over these days. And Jews have always believed, and I certainly believe, that our best hope for creating the kind of future that we want for ourselves and for all peoples, our best hope is in dialogue, not yelling, in thoughtful exchange, not name-calling, and if that's the kind of world we want to live in, we need to take responsibility in sharing, in guaranteeing it, in working to create it where it doesn't exist, and in speaking out against those who think that name-calling can bring a better future. There is nothing more dangerous to us than that false belief, and the only way to uproot it is to continue to demand civil, gentle, thoughtful dialogue. I don't care if individuals are on the right or on the left. 
don't care if their views are centrist or communist. I truly believe in the same way that the Talmud illustrated and that our rabbis have always argued that when we engage in the most careful, most thoughtful speech we can, we will come to a greater understanding and we will move the world forward. And when we do that, we will not snuff out anti-Semitism, but we will continue to make it an unrespected and unrespectable part of the American scene. And that is our best hope. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.